Children's Church. Uh, as our kids are kind of uh, exiting this morning, I just want to tell you, uh, parents, that uh, we're very excited about camp, which is coming up. We're leaving June 27th, uh, about 9 or 10 o'clock that morning. Uh, you, you should have received uh, some, uh, all some attachments and an email regarding all that. But we're very excited about what camp's going to hold for us this week. Kelly and I actually went down there this past week uh, to, to help run the, the first uh, week of youth camp down there at Circle Six in Stanton, Texas, and it was a great time. Uh, God's doing some amazing things down there, so we're very excited for uh, the camp that's coming up and, and what God has in store for us there. Uh, we are going to be back in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Uh, we're going to be in verse 6. Uh, if, if you haven't been sleeping through all the messages, you'll know that we, uh, <laughs> that we are going to the Beatitudes, okay? Hopefully we're all on the same page there, uh, and uh, we're at what we've learned as we've been going through these uh, beatitudes, we, we've discussed the blessings that come with poverty, uh, we've become with poverty of spirit, with mourning, and with meekness. And, and we've, we're starting to see, hopefully by now, that God's economy is very different than ours. His perspective is very different than ours. Our human ideas of greatness and success and prestige have been challenged over the past few weeks. Some of our ideas regarding success and what it is to be uh, successful have been just completely destroyed. And we've also learned that oftentimes when we think we're doing fine, we're really not. And all of these things will continue to hold true this week as we just discuss hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and I'm just going to read that verse to get us started. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the promise that's woven into this beatitude. God, there is a promise of satisfaction when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I just pray that uh, this morning you are exalted, you are upheld, and you are worshiped for your righteousness and for your grace and your mercy. And God, I just pray that you would humble us and, and that you would also give us a security and the satisfaction of our hunger and thirst for you and give us the security that comes along with that. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I, I really love preaching the Beatitudes because I, I really like to just take these verses and, and break them down piece by piece and understand what it is to be blessed, how we're blessed, what, what is the, the prerequisite for that and everything. And so uh, that's really what we're going to do this morning is break this verse down piece by piece and ask ourselves, uh, what is it to be righteous? What is it to hunger and thirst? What is it to be satisfied? Because these are all questions that we have to answer to understand this beatitude. And so to begin, uh, we need to ask the question, what is it to be righteous? Okay, it says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because they will be satisfied. So we need to understand what is this word righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? And so when you really dig into this verse, you see that the word righteous, so the, the word that's translated into our word righteousness, actually conveys the idea of being formally approved or just. 
So basically, to be righteous is to have no charges of wrongdoing against you. So when you stand before God, he views you as never having disobeyed him at all. Okay, so it, it's, a, it's a legal term. So basically, when you stand uh, in front of God on the day of judgment and God looks over all your deeds, he finds nothing that you've done wrong. That's what it means to be righteous. However, if, human, if sheer human experience and your personal experience do, uh, doesn't teach this, the scriptures teach us that we have a big problem when it comes to righteousness because we aren't righteous. Okay, in Romans chapter 3, Paul makes this uh, painfully clear when he's describing what's inside each and every one of us. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a very bleak uh, look at humanity, okay? That's, that's not very hopeful for us, okay? Not only are we not righteous, we have no natural desire to be righteous, okay? We all stand guilty as charged before God for our disobedience and rebellion against our creator, and it gets worse, though, okay? In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, gets even worse, as most of you probably know this verse, but it says, for the wages of sin, okay, or the wage, for the wages of unrighteousness, the wages of not meeting God's standard of perfection is death. And so we're in a really desperate situa situation as humans, okay? We have a creator who has given us commands. We have broken those commands. We have rebelled against him. We have attempted to make ourselves our own gods, and so we stand guilty and unrighteous before our creator. And if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, 17, God tells Adam and Eve what the penalty for unrighteousness or disobedience is, and that is death. And in fact, the only reason that, that sentence is not carried out immediately is because of God's grace. He's allowing us to continue on. He allowed Adam and Eve to continue on living in his grace, and he allows the human race to continue on in his grace. That's the only reason he doesn't carry out this death sentence upon each of us immediately. It's because of his grace. And so we're in a really desperate situation. We are completely unrighteous. We've all disobeyed. We've all rebelled. The penalty for that rebellion and that disobedience is death. And as we stand condemned to death, we really have no natural desire to even do anything about it. We don't want the righteousness that can save us from that death sentence. We don't want God's righteousness naturally. And so as you sit here and think about the state that we find ourselves in, it can seem kind of desperate, okay? It can seem really bleak, and it can actually take us to a place where the disciples found themselves in, in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, this is right after Jesus has had his encounter with the rich young ruler. Uh, if you remember, this rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you followed all the commandments? And of course, like any uh, young, arrogant man, he's like, well, yeah, I followed them perfectly. Okay, I I've never lied or any anything like that. 
And, and so he's very conceited in this. He, he's thinking he's righteous. And then Jesus shows him how really corrupt and how selfish and disobedient his heart really is because Jesus says, okay, if you think you've obeyed all of the commandments perfectly, I've got one more thing for you to do. Sell everything and follow me. And the rich young ruler couldn't do it. He was too attached to his stuff. Jesus revealed to him his lack of obedience in that because he was more attached to his comfort and to his luxury and to his worldly possessions than he was to Christ. And so the rich young ruler leaves and he's sad and, the, and Jesus is explaining to the disciples, hey, it is really hard for a wealthy person to make it into the kingdom of heaven because they get so attached to their belongings. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into heaven. And, and there's a lot of uh, explanations for this. People say, well, the, the eye of a needle was actually a really short gate that went into Jerusalem uh, and, and the camels would have to like get down on their knees and crawl through it. There's really no evidence for a gate like that existing. When Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into heaven, he means it's easier for a camel to literally go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into heaven. And so that leaves the disciples actually really distraught. They're like, well, if it's that hard, then who can be saved? That's what they ask in Matthew 19, verse 25, right after this. Who then can be saved? And that's a really important question to ask, don't you think? We just discussed the situation we find ourselves in. We're completely unrighteous. We're condemned to death. We have no way of defending ourselves. So it's a really good question. It's good and logical to look into how can we be redeemed from this position we find ourselves in. There's a creator God, we've broken his law, we've condemned ourselves to death, what can we do about it? And that's what the disciples are asking here in Matthew 19. This is a, a really kind of a crisis uh, for them because there's, Jesus has just told them that it's virtually impossible if not completely impossible, for man to be saved. But by God's grace, there is an answer to this question, and Jesus gives it to the disciples in the next verse, in verse 26 of Matthew 19. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that brings us to the, the next truth that we need to learn is righteousness comes from God. A good standing, a formal approval before God comes from God and him alone. Because if you look at Matthew chapter 5, 6 at face value, it might seem like if you just want it bad enough, if you want righteousness bad enough, then you'll get it. I mean, look, look at the verse Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So at face value, you read that and say, well, if I just really want to be approved by God badly enough, then it'll happen. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying because that word righteousness there is actually a word that's primarily used in Jewish culture. It's rarely seen outside of a Jewish context when we look at ancient Near Eastern literature. 
And, and the significance of this is when it's used within a uh, Jewish culture, it always refers to a righteousness that comes from God. So Jesus is not simply saying, if you want to be approved before God badly enough, then, then that will be satisfied. What he's saying is, if you hunger and thirst for the righteousness that comes from God and him alone, then that will be satisfied. And we can't miss that because Jesus is not suggesting that you can uh, earn salvation or earn righteousness by just wanting it badly enough. He's saying you have to trust, you have to hunger and thirst for that righteousness that comes from God. It's a very specific word and it's a very specific type of righteousness. And, 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 and so we have to understand that Jesus is not suggesting that you can find a way to earn a righteousness from yourself. You have to trust in that righteousness that comes from God. And, and Paul reinforces this in Romans chapter 1, the, the passage that Byron read us, starting in verse 16. I want to break this down. So uh, starting in verse 16, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against... Uh, I'm sorry, that's verse 18. Uh, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God... So look right there. It's not the righteousness of Joe. It's not the righteousness of Byron. It's not the righteousness of anyone else. It's the righteousness of God. It belongs to him. It is received from him. It is given by him. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written that righteous shall live by faith. So it's, it's God's righteousness but it's revealed from faith for faith. So we are granted access to this righteousness through faith. It is a trust in the righteousness that Christ provides. It is not earning it on our own. It's not like God just says, hey, I've got this righteousness. I'm going to set it here. If you can earn it, it's yours. No, it is received through faith, not by works. It is received by trusting in Jesus Christ, knowing that he is covering you with his righteousness, that he has paid the price for your sins. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It wasn't owed you. So let me kind of give you an illustration uh, of what it's like to receive this righteousness from God. <clears throat> it's probably no surprise that I was a bit of a track legend when I was younger. Okay, I mean, with this physique, I was bound to be an athlete. What you might find interesting, though, is how I became a track legend. There were two instances that uh, <clears throat> will probably always be remembered at Howe High School. In junior high, I joined the track team, and they put me in a long-distance race. Why not? Uh, so I was running this race, and it was six laps. Uh, and so it was my first track meet ever, and I was actually pretty excited because it was a really intense race. We're all right at the end of the race. We're right at the finish line, and there's a group of four or five guys just right here in one big group, and we all pass the finish line. And I get off the track, and I really don't know what place I have. I'm either second or third, but we're all so close that I couldn't tell. And so I go ask my coach, hey, did, you know, what did I finish? And, and he then explained to me that uh, I actually wasn't finished with the race yet. <laughs> all those other guys had lapped me at some point and I didn't even notice. 
That experience, though, did not deter me. <laughs> Fast forward to my junior year in high school. I'm running the 300 hurdles because why not again? <laughs> so we go to the first track meet of the year, and uh, it's my first time to run hurdles ever. Had not practiced, just put me in there. Uh, so I'm running the 300 hurdles, and there's 10 hurdles in this race. I made it over the first eight, fine. And I'm coming up on the ninth one, and I'm like, I just can't jump anymore. So I, in my mind, I have it, I'm going to do the Heisman on this ninth and tenth hurdle and just kind of go, just barrel through them. We can make it. Did not go as planned. I hit that hurdle at full speed and just completely busted. And it was a really old, really rough track. And when I got up, there was just skin hanging off both knees, both elbows. I've got a white track suit on that's now just covered in red from all the blood. So I kind of get up and I'm kind of limping and I go up to the last hurdle. I just pick it up and set it in the next lane. <laughs> and I walk through the finish line. And, uh, and of course, you know, the track team, you all ride to the other school on a bus. I get off the track, I go up in the stands and find my mom. Says, mom, we're going home. <laughs> so uh, that was my track experience, but here's what happened. So uh, during the way we did it, um, you know, track meets, parents, if you have kids in track, you know they go till like five o'clock the next morning. Uh, so we, we didn't get our medals or anything. Uh, yeah, there's medals involved, just wait. We didn't get our medals or anything until the next week because the schools uh, that hosted it would, you know, do all the paperwork stuff, figure out who earned medals, and, uh, and then they would mail them to, to all the different schools that competed the next week. So we're sitting around right before track practice, and the coach is handing out all the medals to everybody, uh, and I hear my name called. Yeah. So sure enough, the school that hosted it had made a clerical error on the paperwork and sent a silver medal to Joe Vincent for the 300 hurdles. <laughs> I still have that medal. <laughs> the, the coach tried to make me give it back and I said that other guy can earn one a lot quicker than I can. So he's got a lot better shot. So uh, I tell that there's a point to that story, I promise. Uh, so uh, when I think about that though, that's really a, a brilliant illustration for how the Christian life is lived and the righteousness that we receive at the end of it, uh, the righteousness that, that comes from Christ. Because uh, the Christian life in Hebrews chapter 12 and elsewhere is compared to a race, okay? It, it, it tells us to run the race faithfully and following Jesus and faithfully serving him is a lifelong race that we're all commanded to do. Uh, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us. So as Christians, we're running a race, okay? We're doing uh, the best that we can to serve Jesus, to be faithful to him. And then at the end of that race, we receive something a whole lot better than a medal. I want you to think back to our uh, Revelation series and, and Revelation chapter two, verse 17 specifically. Byron preached about the white stones. And, and, and with these white stones, it, all believers are given these, these white stones. 
And what they represent is they represent a place in the family of God. And then the color white represents innocence, purity, and righteousness. Now, we've done nothing to earn these white stones. Absolutely nothing. I was terrible at running track. But we deserve these stones even less than I deserve that silver medal. We are not righteous for any reason other than that Jesus in his mercy and grace declares us righteous. When we get through with the Christian life, we're gonna stand before Jesus and he's gonna say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he's gonna give us a white stone representing our righteousness. And it's not gonna be a mistake that the school made. And it's not gonna be because we earned it. We're all gonna limp across that finish line, bloody and broken, having done the best we could and failed time and time again. And yet Jesus is still gonna give us that stone. That's how righteousness works. That's how the righteousness from God works. It's a trusting in him for it. It's not trying to earn it. It's not trying to work hard enough for it. Which brings us to the next point, which is, often a very painful point because see this message of the gospel and this imputed righteousness of Christ uh, it's the most wonderful message to hear but it's also the most horrifying message to hear and here's why if you look at Jesus's earthly ministry he always had two very distinct reactions there were people that would fall down in front of him and and praise him for this salvation and praise him for uh, this imputed righteousness imputed just means that we're, we're, it's given to us when we don't deserve it but there's also a group of people that hated that same message and that's because they were trying to earn their own righteousness and self-righteousness is false righteousness see there's a lot of people attempting to earn and produce their own righteousness through an empty religion just as there were in Jesus's day and so as Jesus would preach the gospel and he would say, hey, uh, righteousness is found in me alone. It made some people extremely happy and joyful. It made other people extremely angry. And the reason was the environment that Jesus came into, there were a, the religious leaders of the day loved the law. They loved it. In fact, they added to it. And what they had done is Jesus walked into this environment that was Israel there was a system in place that enslaved people to a set of rules and rituals that they could never adhere to. But these religious leaders, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, all of these people, as far as outward behavior goes, as far as what people could see, they obeyed the law better than anyone and they knew it better than anyone. And what they did was they used that power of the law that they had to keep the rest of the people under their thumb, to maintain their political control, to maintain their prestige. They used this system that they had created to keep everyone else under their thumb because they were the ones with the law. They could follow it. They knew it better than anyone. And so when Jesus comes into this environment and he preaches the gospel, and he says, there is salvation from all of this. There is salvation from this bondage that you have in sin. There is salvation from the condemnation that is given through the law. There is salvation from all that. You had one group of people who uh, sang praises for him because they knew very well that this system that was in place was not going to work. They knew 
that they could never fulfill the standard and earn their own righteousness. But you had another group that absolutely hated it because it threatened the system that kept them in power. And not only that, it threatened their righteousness because they honestly believed. It went way beyond just wanting to maintain power. These Pharisees and Sadducees and other leaders honestly believed that they were producing their own righteousness through their obedience. And so when Jesus tells them that that's impossible and that they have to rely on him, that was the worst message they'd ever heard. It enraged them to the point that they murdered him. And so you have these two reactions. You have a group of people that know full well, hey, I can't be righteous on my own. And so they hear the message of the gospel and they cling to it. But you have another group of people who are perfectly content trying to produce their own righteousness, their false righteousness. So the gospel enrages them. And here's the sad truth. There's people sitting in church all over the world this morning. There's probably people sitting in these pews right here that are fully content with producing their own righteousness. And you don't want that righteousness that you've worked so hard for to be threatened. And it grieves me because I know there's people who mean well that are in their hearts completely uh, lost because they're, they're thinking that they're producing their own righteousness, okay? That there are people with a commitment to church, to moral living, and doing good for others because they think that it's making them righteous. They're, they're using religion to make themselves righteous. And Jesus has a spine-chilling message for us in Matthew chapter 7 for this group of people. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The sad truth is there are people who have never missed a Sunday at church, have never missed a tithe check, and have spent a lot of their free time doing good things for others that will be, <clears throat> that will be rejected by the Son of God on Judgment Day. We are called to do these good things. We are called to be committed to a local church. We are called to moral living and, and to be faithful and obedient. But these things should flow from a heart that clings to Jesus for righteousness and serves him as a form of worship, not from a heart that is prideful and conceited and content in our own righteousness. All of these things are, are good things. It's things that Christians are supposed to do but if we're doing them to try to earn righteousness instead of from a place of appreciation for Christ's righteousness, it's completely empty. Self-righteousness is false righteousness. If you're not clinging every single day to the promise of salvation that we find in Jesus Christ, you're clinging to a false righteousness and a false hope. So that's what righteousness is. It comes from God and only from God. It's a formal approval by God. When we stand before him, there will be no wrongdoing charged to us. But how do we obtain that? Okay, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness. 
What does it mean to hunger and thirst? Because I, I think, you know, a lot of times we, uh, the radical nature of hungering and thirsting and, and desiring God is kind of watered down. And, and it's, uh, we don't really get the grasp of it. So turn with me to, to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, uh, 1 through 4, really shows us a picture of what it is to desire God. And uh, Psalm 40, Psalms 42 and 43 are actually one psalm that's been split into two. And, and the context of it is the author, the psalmist, is, has for whatever reason been forced to be away from Jerusalem. And, and so the context of this is the, the author has been forced to be away from the presence of God. That's what Jerusalem represents. And so for whatever reason, uh, there's been a separation between this person and God. And we're gonna see what the desire for God looks like from this person who's been separated from him. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. I don't know about you, but when I read this and many other Psalms that talk about David or whatever author it is, when they talk about their desire for God, it makes me feel really small and just like a horrible Christian because my desire doesn't match this. Look at the anguish that this author has when he's separated from God. Look at the anguish and despair that he has. All, all he's concerned about is being with God. All he's concerned about is just having this desire and this yearning for God. He's so overcome with, with this desire that he compares himself to a deer panting for water. And I think we forget about, um, about that desire. Like we put it on coffee mugs and t-shirts, but we don't really fully grasp like what that kind of desire is. We need to desire the righteousness of Christ like a five-year-old desires a glass of water or a snack at bedtime, okay? How many of y'all have kids? It's time to go to bed. All they can think about. I need a glass of water and I need a snack. Okay, they've got a one-track mind. Well, the hunger and the thirst that we're supposed to have for Christ and his righteousness consumes us even more than that to the point that it affects everything else in our life. Jesus is not number one on a list with a lot of other things behind him. Jesus is the only thing and everything else in our life comes from that. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us a parable that explains the effect of this desire. It's just a couple verses long, 45 and 46. <clears throat> it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what Jesus is saying is, uh, he gives us this parable of a man who found a pearl and it was so precious, it was so great that he sold all the other ones. He said nothing else is as important as this right here. His entire life was shaped around that one pearl. That's the kind of desire 
that we're supposed to have for Christ. Jesus is not a priority, he's the priority, okay? And in fact, we use the word priority wrongly. Okay, originally, if you go back and, and, and study the English language, the word priority originally had no plural spelling. That's because the word priority was, there was only one priority, okay? It's a very American thing to, to use priority in the plural, because we think we can handle all these things at once when Jesus tells us that you, can, you can't serve two masters. Jesus is the priority. He's not just at the top of the list of things in your life. He is at the center of it, and everything else in your life is shaped around him. But here's the problem, though. If you remember from Romans chapter 3 earlier, we don't have a natural desire for God. We, this, this desire, this hunger, and this thirst, it doesn't come naturally to us. So what has to happen, as is, is explained in Ezekiel 36, 26, is God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. So on the inside, God is changing us. He's making us new people. He's giving us this desire that we don't have naturally. But what's happening on the outside is this change is evidenced in our behavior, in our attitude, in our desires. Okay, we have to understand that God is in control of salvation from start to finish. He's giving us this desire, but that doesn't mean that you sit there Say, well, God's got it under control. No, there's supposed to be some evidence of this internal change that's making its way out. We're in love with Christ to the point that it affects everything in our lives. When the gospel becomes a reality to us, it's not just our top priority, it is our only priority. We have a hunger and thirst for Jesus and his righteousness. We want to serve him. We want to be faithful to him. We want to obey him because of this desire that's within us. We're new people. We don't want to sin anymore. We don't want to serve ourselves anymore. We want to serve Jesus. That's what it is to hunger and thirst. And then finally, the last element of this beatitude is, I think, the, the best and the most encouraging, and that is the promise of satisfaction. Those who hunger and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If we receive the gospel, trust in Christ, and follow after him, this hunger and thirst for his righteousness is guaranteed to be satisfied. And the reason Christ can give us this guarantee is because his atoning work on the cross that's already been completed is sufficient for all sin. Go to 1 John chapter 2. We see this promise reiterated in verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. If I can figure out where 1 John is. There it is. It's 1 John chapter 2 verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have, uh, we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So John is telling us, hey, within our community right here, he, he's writing this letter to, to his immediate Christian community. And he's saying, hey, within our community right here, we're all Christians, okay? We've seen the gospel change us. We all have a desire to follow and obey Jesus. We, we've seen the effectiveness of the gospel within our community. But I wanna tell you something, that same sufficiency, okay, that Jesus' atonement was sufficient for our sins, it was sufficient to redeem us, 
it's sufficient to redeem anybody else too. There's not a person in the world that has sinned beyond salvation. There's not a person in the world who has gone so far into sin that Jesus can't bring them back. And it breaks my heart because I've talked to so many people over a decade of ministry that truly feel like they cannot be saved. I've done too much, I've gone too far, God doesn't want me, Jesus can't save me. That is a lie from hell. There is no sin that's beyond the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. There is no sin that Jesus doesn't know about that he can't cover. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. You have done nothing that Jesus wasn't prepared for. You've done nothing that he cannot redeem you from. The promise remains if you turn to him, trust in his righteousness and hunger and thirst for him, that will be satisfied. Jesus can guarantee us that because of the work that he's already completed. So in closing, there's three things that we have to take away from this beatitude. The first is righteousness or the formal approval before God can only come from God. It can't be earned and we do not deserve it in any way. Secondly, trusting in Christ and his righteousness doesn't mean we tip our hat to God from time to time. It's not just this empty acknowledgement of the gospel. It is a desire and a pursuit that consumes our entire lives. And then finally, we are guaranteed that our desire and our pursuit will be satisfied because Christ's atoning work is completely sufficient for all of our sin. And if you don't have that peace and that security of this satisfaction, of, of, of this satisfaction I encourage you to find it today. Grab Byron, grab myself and say, hey, I feel God working within me. I want that satisfaction. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Grab somebody and talk to them about that. Don't leave here without that security, without that satisfaction. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your righteousness. God, it's something that we can't produce on our own. It's something that we cannot earn. But you give, us, you give it to us in your grace. And God, I pray this morning that if there's somebody sitting in this pew who desires righteousness, but they don't have the security of Christ, God, just work in their heart to draw them near to you, to, to reveal the gospel to them. God, make the gospel a reality in their life this morning. And God, for those of us that do have that security, I pray that you would give us a hunger. God, make, make us desire the righteousness of Christ. Make us desire you to the point that it consumes our entire lives that all we can think about all we can want is jesus and it's in his name that we pray amen